Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And today's subject is pretty serious and it's been in the news a lot lately. And to me, it's always fascinating when something that happened in the past makes headlines because of new archaeological insight or medical analysis or just the most thorough review of buried facts you could possibly do. And I think it's interesting because it gives people the chance to revisit a story that they may have only learned about in textbooks or in films. It gives people a chance to revisit history. Well, and let us see what history really is, which, of course, is something that's subject to interpretation and not ever as final as it may seem to us. And we've done so many episodes where there are huge blanks in the information that's out there, and they're definitely harder for us to research. Mad Trapper of Rat River. (laughs) Marie Laveau. Um, But there's some of your favorites, and a lot of those blank spots aren't ever going to be filled, but others can still come to light, and that's what we're talking about today. Yeah, our subject today would have been a very different kind of episode had we recorded it one week earlier, because it would have been before the release of the Savile Report, which is this 5,000-page blow-by-blow account of the events of Bloody Sunday, and it's really shined so much light on a very murky period in history. The BBC says the report's length and depth may have, and I quote, in any other context, have rendered it a purely academic and historic document. But in the context of Northern Ireland, this report is alive with the lessons of history. But first, as always, we better go back a little bit and find out what happened before we can really understand this report and its significance. So in 1969, British soldiers had arrived in Northern Ireland to protect Catholics after all the rising tensions there were creating a lot of trouble. And by 1972, Irish nationalists believed that the British were just there as occupying forces. They wanted them out of the country. And it wasn't long before Northern Ireland's unionist government started to inter suspected paramilitaries without trial, something that was making people very upset. Another civil right that was taken away was the right to march, to protest, uh, and people were getting really tired of this. So on January 30th, 1972, a civil rights group in Londonderry had decided to stage a peaceful mass demonstration to protest the ban. The march was organized by the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, And its organizers really meant for it to be peaceful, although riots at the time were a frequent event. They even contacted Republican factions and urged them to hold back any violence and allow the demonstration to take place in peace. But as Sarah mentioned, tensions were high. Yeah, just a few days earlier, two Londonderry policemen had been killed. And so many people were really on edge, but others... and. will include a lot of young people in this group, too, were just out there to be together and take part in this protest. One of the injured women later recounted that she had gone to hang out with her friends and to show off her new coat. So don't think of this protest as having every single person involved at the height of distress and ready to be violent. It wasn't quite like that. And the 10,000 people marched toward Guildhall Square, but 
They found it barricaded because, in anticipation of trouble, the 1st Battalion of the Parachute Regiment had been sent from Belfast to Derry, and the recent report suggested that (laughs) perhaps this was the wrong group to try to maintain the peace with, since they were known for their force. So when the crowd hit the barricade, most turned toward Free Derry Corner, and others stayed on course, and that's when a riot began, typical in that the protesters threw stones and the troops fired rubber bullets and a water cannon. But the troops had orders to arrest as many people as possible, and the violence began to escalate. And so shots rang out, and within half an hour, 13 protesters were dead, and 14 were injured, one of whom later died from his wounds. And a lot of the dead are really young boys, about 17 years old. And the most famous image from the event is one of those young boys, 17-year-old named Jackie Duddy, who was uh, mortally wounded, and there's a famous picture of him being rushed out of the crowd with a priest in front of him waving a white handkerchief as a flag. And from those 30 minutes of violence, many questions arose. Who fired first? Were the dead men armed or innocent civilians? And who was responsible? An inquiry was immediately ordered by Prime Minister Edward Heath and was led by the Lord Chief Justice of England, Lord Widgery. And he quickly produced a 60-page report concluding that while the dead didn't have weapons on them, on their dead bodies... They may have been armed before that or may have fired weapons before. And it also concluded that the demonstrators had definitely fired the first shots, which necessitated the army's response. And people are understandably outraged at this conclusion. The dairy coroner said that the deaths were unadulterated murder. So there's no question about what most of the people involved felt about this incident. And so for the next several decades, nationalists and relatives of the victims and just people interested in seeing justice carried out pushed for a new inquiry. And the violence spread, too. This The events of Bloody Sunday really pushed the state of Northern Ireland into catastrophe. Bloody Sunday basically ended these nonviolent approaches to civil rights as more people began to support the IRA which advocated force against the UK to get them out of Northern Ireland. Yeah, only a few weeks after the incident, the Prime Minister had suspended Parliament in Belfast and imposed direct British rule. And only six months after the event, the provisional IRA came out really hard. They detonated 20 bombs over Belfast, killing nine people, mutilating 130 people. And over the next few decades, at least 3,600 people die in these troubled times between the two countries. This direct rule lasted until 1998 with the Good Friday Peace Pact, which helped de-escalate the violence. And Prime Minister Tony Blair also marked the peace by commissioning an inquest to the event, which had sent the troubles spiraling out of control, which was Bloody Sunday. So the inquest produced a report, the Savile Inquiry, which was led by the judge, Lord Savile, and took 12 years to research. It called 1,400 witnesses, and it cost $280 million. And I'd like to thank the New York Times for converting (laughs) that figure into dollars for me. And at least one man, Mickey McKinney, who is the brother of one of the victims, attended every day of the hearings, which is unbelievable. Hearings that go on for 12 years. Just imagine how much that would dominate your life. He even commuted to London for a time when they had moved the case there because they were concerned about the safety of some of the people testifying. 
This inquiry completely recreated the events of the 30th and, most importantly, answered those lingering questions. It concluded that none of the victims had posed a threat, that the first shots came from the British Army, and that while there was some firing from Republican paramilitaries mixed in with the crowd, it didn't warrant shooting unarmed civilians. And also that none of the soldiers had fired in response to people throwing projectiles, something the soldiers' lawyers had long claimed. And then in this remarkable speech that happened just a few days before we're recording this, the still new Prime Minister, David Cameron, apologized before Parliament, saying that the Bloody Sunday shootings were, quote, both unjustified and unjustifiable, and that, quote, what happened should never, ever have happened. The families of those who died should not have had to live with the pain and hurt of that day and a lifetime of loss. Some members of our armed forces acted wrongly. The government is ultimately responsible for the conduct of the armed forces. And for that, on the behalf of the government and indeed our country, I am deeply sorry. So very powerful words to come from the prime minister to parliament. And they were viewed by news people all over the world and most importantly, people in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I've met with cheers and Londonderry. People were congregating with you know, photos of the victims and ripping up the old Widgery report to, to celebrate what he was saying. Yeah, and the report really does give us a lot of new insight into what actually happened, specific details. As I said earlier, it's really a blow-by-blow thing. The The summary of the report is 60 pages. That's how long the old report is. That gives you a pretty good example of how detailed it is. But one of the things we get a better sense about is the order that things progressed in, that events progressed in. And we know that the Parachute Regiment had had orders to arrest rioters, but the orders from Ground Commander Brigadier Pat McClellan had been to make arrests only when the rioters were separate from the marchers, to, to split up those two groups. And instead, Colonel Derek Wilford pursued arrests in the crowd where there was no way to tell who was who, who was a rioter, who was trying to flee the scene. And meanwhile, an anonymous Lieutenant N fired shots over the head of the crowd, which was a really big mistake because it sent his own fellow soldiers into panic. They didn't know where the shots were coming from. Imagine in the middle of a riot, they have the fog guns going off, the water hoses. You can't tell what's going on, and they hear these bullets starting to fire. The report noted that, quote, soldiers reacted by losing their self-control and firing themselves, forgetting or ignoring their instructions and training, and failing to satisfy themselves that they had identified targets posing a threat of causing death or serious injury. And they likely believed that they were firing at provisional or official IRA members, but in reality, only one of those killed, Gerald Donaghy, was even a member of the group's youth wing. And while he was, quote, probably carrying nail bombs, the report still calls his death unjustified and concluded that one victim was shot while crawling away and that another was shot at while already dying. And already several of the soldiers who had not fired shots rejected this report's criticism of Wilford, saying that some senior official had to be blamed and it happened to be Wilford. But what's really interesting about the report is its acknowledgement of the shooting's future impact on the relations between England and Northern Ireland. It it goes pretty in-depth with that. And one quote is, What happened on Bloody Sunday strengthened the provisional IRA, increased nationalist resentment and hostility towards the army, and exacerbated the violent conflicts of the years that followed. So it's really acknowledging 
all that comes from this single 30-minute incident. So the Sava report helped settle some long-held questions about who was responsible, and it also gave family members the chance to, you know, many of them are getting up in front of crowds and saying the name of their their loved one, the victim, and then being able to say innocent after it because they all knew that they were innocent, but now you've got, you know, that, that official word that, yes, they didn't do anything wrong. But there's at least one big question left, which is, should the soldiers and their commander face criminal prosecution? And the decision rests with Northern Ireland's Public Prosecution Service, something Cameron alluded to in his speech. And it's likely that new information will come out on this by the time we publish this episode. And in fact, the story was updating as Sarah was researching. Yeah. It's also interesting to note that this report has been ready for a short time, at least. The former Prime Minister, Brown, actually kept back the results until the country's May elections were over because he was afraid that what the results, whatever they may be, would cause some sort of trouble. And Cameron also alluded to the overall history of Britain and Ireland during this time period, trying to point out that a thousand soldiers and policemen had been killed during the conflicts and that this was a terrible anomaly out of um, out of the regular service that was going on. But he also said that you do not defend the British Army by defending the indefensible. We do not honor all those who have served with distinction in keeping the peace and upholding the rule of law in Northern Ireland by hiding from the truth. So it's interesting to see such a candid document come out and have a prime minister talk about it in such a so candid honestly, way. Yes. And I guess we can only hope that it works to promote future peace and not do anything to hinder it. Well, after all, like Bono says, the U2 song Bloody Sunday is not a rebel song. And that wraps up what we know today about Bloody Sunday, although, of course, that may change. And that brings us to listener mail. One listener wrote us about a podcast we did a while back around St. Patrick's Day, Brian Boru. And he said, I know it's a while since you did your podcast about Brian Boru, but there's one important aspect of his success that you missed, and that's slavery. In Ireland at the time, those defeated in battle would surrender, accept the overlordship of their victor, and go home to lick their wounds and give military support to their new overlord until the next time they felt strong enough to oppose him. And when Brian's Dal Kosh captured Limerick from the Vikings, they had a much more lucrative option available to them. They sold their vanquished opponents into slavery. And whatever Brian's dislike of the Vikings of Limerick, he was happy to use them to destroy his enemies. To be defeated in battle by Brian Boru could easily mean being marched to Limerick in chains, loaded on board a Viking ship, and finding yourself the property of a Spanish or North African moor. For Brian, it meant a defeated enemy need not be of any future concern. His war chest would be filled with foreign gold, and potential enemies would have to think very carefully about opposing him. I wish I could remember my sources, but unfortunately, I can only pass it on as top-of-the-head information, which may interest you but can be used. But we are using it in listener mail. So if you'd like to email us, we're at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. But that's not the only way to get in touch. We're also on Twitter at Mist in History, and we have a Facebook fan page where we'll keep you updated on what we're doing and what we're researching. And as always, feel free to visit our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 